The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, folks, we're going to continue our study of, of Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. Uh, we're in the section of doctrine known as, well, uh, the proper term for it is anthropology, the study of man, really the study of humankind. Uh, the next chapter in that subsection of the study of man is man as male and female. So we're t- talking tonight about gender. Um, and so I think it's important for us as we look at the Bible and try to understand what it says, not only to discern to discern biblical doctrine, but also try to discern the areas that the devil is attacking. You know, try to find out what is the devil opposing. Now, obviously, the devil opposes everything and anything God says. But it seems that he he concentrates his efforts in certain areas. And in my opinion, kind of the center of a lot of the devil's uh, false teaching and attack these days, at least in America, is on the family, on what it is, what it's meant to be, uh, how it works, etc., and rela- issues related to that. So everything from gay marriage to um, just male-female roles to parenting, all of these things, it's just a center of activity that the devil uh, has in our culture. And so we have to be aware of what he's doing. And I think that this idea of gender, what is it? You know, what, what is the significance of it? How do we, how do we understand it? How should we, how should we, uh, live according to the biblical ideas of gender is one of the areas that's under attack. Uh, we have become a kind of a gender confused people. We're not really sure what it means to be a man and a woman anymore. Not, not quite sure what masculinity is. Not sh- sure what femininity is. Uh, and there's lots of indications of this. But God created gender. He created male and female. And we saw that in the verse last time, right from the beginning, Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. There's no three kinds. I'm sure you know that by now. You've looked around. You've been all over the world, been lots of places. You've noticed that there's this kind of bipartite division of the human race. Have you noticed? I hope you've noticed. I've noticed and uh, it's one of the things you kind of note right away about a human being when they come toward you is, are they a male or female? It's just one of the very first things you notice. Some cases are hard to tell, all right, you know, these days. But that's part of what we were talking about. But at any rate, it is an issue right from the beginning. I mean, think about, I mean, we're expecting our fifth child, all right? As soon as that child is born, what's the first one of the, probably the first question is, well, what is it, you know? And what is it is the answer cannot be it's a human being. That will not satisfy the person asking. They want to know if it's a boy or girl. Um, so uh, for the nine months, all of our four, now five children, we have not found out until the birthday. So uh, we're always excited to find out what it is. It's an it until then, then it, it becomes a son or daughter. So we're kind of excited about that. But at any rate, uh, male and female was created by God right from the beginning. Genesis 5, 1 and 2, another verse that teaches it. It says, this is the written account of Adam's line. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. 
He created them male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them uh, man. So obviously God thought gender was important. You know, and the reason we can say that is first because of what he did. He created them male and female. Uh, secondly, he inspired Moses to write that he made them male and female. So those are two different actions of God, and it shows that gender is important. I think if we just take a step back and look at uh, just the way that God has chosen to deal with uh, the human race and has chosen to deal with animals and all that through procreation. Uh, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth that uh, gender was essential to that. So it's not, an, it's not an extra ancillary or insignificant part of God's plan in the world. It's important. That's all we're saying right now. Now, it's important for you too, personally. Your gender was set from the moment of conception. Science tells us that. From the very, very first beginning of you, um, you know, inside your mother's womb, you were male or female. It's not like it developed halfway through. Right from the start, God had chosen what you would be. And so it says in Psalm 139, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me written in your book before one of them came to be. So God knit you together and he did that in you uh, or in your inside your mother's womb. Uh, he made you male or female right from the start. So this is not insignificant. God made them male and female. Genesis 1, he made you male or female. Now there is, I think, I discern uh, an attack on gender in our in our culture, there's a lot of uh, different ways that this is showing up. One of them is the issue of homosexuality, about which I wrote uh, an article in the Durham uh, Herald Sun a couple weeks ago. Um, and obviously, that would not be my favorite place to begin, you know, in the family and faith section. But just given re- recent current events and what's happened in our church uh, recently, it just seemed, you know, with the protests outside the church about a month ago or more. Uh, seemed appropriate for us to begin to communicate accurately to our surrounding culture about this issue and to keep doing that. So uh, that's one of the issues. Of course, the issue of gay marriage, other things has come up. Uh, also, there's just a blurring in gender distinctions and roles. Uh, I noted that, see, every week Sports Illustrated puts out a list of the number one golfer in the world. And a while ago, they just started having just one list. And so the number one golfer in the world right now, according to them, is Annika Sorenstam. Uh, and Vijay Singh is number two, and Tiger Woods is number three. I, I find that interesting in that she plays in the LPGA and they play in the PGA. They're just not even in the same tour. Uh, and yet they're just, there's just a, a, and I think it's intentional. I don't think it's an accident. I think they're doing it on purpose. It's not like they don't know. They're very much doing it on purpose. There's an issue in which they're saying it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter uh, that she's a woman. Well, I think it matters to her. Uh, and I think it matters in an absolute sense. Um, also, you've probably noticed uh, a change in Olympic sports, the kind of things they're doing like uh, women's ice hockey and women's Greco-Roman wrestling and other things. The women weightlifters, the ladies from Bulgaria are really quite amazing uh, at many levels. Um, and they're even talking about women boxing, if you can imagine that. Um, 
it's, it's really kind of a remarkable thing. Now, these sports, pole vaulting and others, were generally male-only sports, but there's a, there's a push that there be gender equity across the board on, uh, on sports. Uh, perhaps a little more uh, poignantly is the issue of women's combat roles in Iraq. You know, more and more time these days, women are in the direct line of fire. They're in combat units. And there's a discussion of the po- a possible... Um, you know, some legislation that would prevent women from being in combat roles, and it was removed or pulled back. The the man who was suggesting it was really kind of shouted down to some degree, and uh, there's a lot of rhetoric about honoring the the place of women who are willing to lay down their lives for the, for our country. But the question is, should they even be there in the line of fire? In the past, uh, that wasn't even an option, but now uh, it's happening. So more and more we see that. There's a, it was a Fox News report, uh, page two there, August 26, 2004, in the current U.S. Uh, military, women fill battlefield roles alongside men like never before. Long gone are the days when female soldiers were nurses or were serving in some other behind-the-scenes capacity. As a result, 24 female soldiers have died in Iraq, 15 from hostile fire. More female war dead than in any conflict since World War II. Despite that reality, supporters of women in combat say it's a giant step for gender equality. Uh, critics argue that it isn't a positive development, but one that does more harm to society than good. And while women now serve on combat ships, fly combat missions, and conduct door-to-door searches through dangerous Iraqi neighborhoods, uh, limits remain. They're still restricted from infantry units, armor and field artillery companies in wartime. So while the combat doors have opened for women willing to die for their country, just as their male counterparts do, the battle for complete gender equality remains a divisive conflict. So that's a Fox News blurb there about women in uh, military. And then I think just in general, you see uh, in, in our popular culture more and more gender confusion, more and more of a, just curiosity. We don't really even, even know what it means to be a man or a woman. Uh, the general strategy then is to mock the idea of essential uh, differences based on gender. I guess I'm just asking for us to think biblically about these things, challenging us that we would not just get swept along in our uh, cultural confusion about this. We shouldn't be confused. We should know what it means to be a man. We should know what it means to be a woman. We should know these things biblically. We should not shy away from them. We shouldn't be embarrassed about them. These things are good. They were created by God. We should be embracing them and understand them as given to us by God. So that's my goal tonight is that we would uh, unabashedly embrace what God says about male and female and understand how the devil is attacking and understand how he's worked in the past and conversely understand what God wants to do through the idea of male and female. Now, what Wayne Grudem does in his chapter is he says that the creation of man as male and female shows God's image in three key ways. First, through harmonious interpersonal relationships. Second, through equality in personhood and importance. And third, uh, difference in role and authority. Those three things. So uh, I think as Christians, we should be called on to understand the things that Grudem's saying and to answer the attacks that the devil is doing in our culture. Uh, we should do it in two ways, with biblical truth and with winsome role modeling. That's a great way to answer what our culture is doing, isn't it? I mean, to know what the Bible says and to, like it says, to, to, um, to fight with spiritual weapons. Our weapons are not, are not carnal, they're not physical, but they're spiritual. What do we fight with? Well, we fight with the truth. We fight with the Bible, with understanding what the truth is. We take captive every thought, make it obedient to Christ. We demolish arguments. We don't demolish people. We demolish arguments. We demolish false understandings with the truth. 
And we also uh, model joyfully and gladly what it means to be, in the one case, a man, in the other case, a woman. We do that with godly marriages. We do that with well-ordered homes and churches. That's what we want to do. So we want to just be a, a light shining in a dark place as we hold out the word of life, like it says in Philippians 3. We want to be uh, winsome as we try to challenge our culture to think properly about these things. Um, All right, man as male and female. Let's look at the three ways that Grudem talks about uh, the fact that that we are created, uh, male and female, uh, the way that it uh, displays or shows God's image. First, in personal relationships. God created us not for isolation, but for society. He created us to be together. It says in Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And that's a very, very important verse, isn't it? Uh, Most obviously, this passage does apply to marriage. However, I've had a thought about this. It troubles me somewhat when people, I think, misunderstand the significance of Adam at that moment in redemptive history. Uh, He's not every or any bachelor, all right? What he is, is he's the only human being that exists in the universe at that time. And that's what God is saying is not good. You see what I'm saying? So therefore, we shouldn't go too far and and say that no one could be gifted with singleness or that singleness, for example, now is not good because it says in Genesis 2, it's not good for man to be alone. We're not alone. Look around the room, okay? (laughs) There's lots of people. Jesus never married. There are some people that have the gift of singleness. They're called to that. That's a good thing. And we would not take Genesis 2 and say it's not good for man to be alone. You need to go find yourself a wife or a husband. We would not want to do that, okay? Because we're not alone. And we have people around us. We have churches around us, etc. So people that are gifted, as Jesus talks in Matthew 19 about the gift of singleness, not everyone can accept this, but only those to whom it is given, that gift of singleness, that's a good thing, all right? But I still think that Adam uh, is the paradigm of a man who doesn't have a wife yet at at a limited sense. I just don't want to extend it and, and preclude a good thing that God's doing in singleness, that's all. But uh, he is, you know, that single man. And so don't don't fret if you use this verse in your wedding or whatever. It's on wedding stationery and all that. That's fine. I'm just saying that there's a place for the godly unmarried person in the church. That's all I'm saying. Human beings were created to interact. I mean, think what it would feel like to um, to be the only human being on the planet. Now, if you didn't know any better, then it's no big deal. It's just an exciting new world that God created. But God knew that that's not good. He knew that it's, it's just not good uh, to be alone. I think it'd be a little bit eerie to be Noah and his family realize you're one of only eight human beings on the face of the earth. Now, wouldn't that be... I mean, you have to have a strong kind of mental constitution to say, let's start over, you know? Let's start the human race over. Um, but at any rate, it's not good to, uh, for man to be alone. And so um, God, um, God wanted to make a helper suitable for him. Now, it... In in doing that, he didn't create at that moment another man. He didn't create a child. He didn't create he didn't create a grandfather or whatever. He created a wife. That's how he began. And I think it's significant that that's how he chooses to bring companionship, how he chooses to bring another human being into his life. He does it in a specific way uh, through marriage. And so the highest form of human human society on earth is marriage. Genesis 2:24 it says. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. That's a kind of a what you call a proleptic or a prophetic statement because there were no uh, that that process hadn't been set up yet. 
All right, Adam and Eve were the first, but from then on, you would have this process of a man leaving his father and mother and going and being united to his wife. By the time Moses wrote that, these words, that had been going on for generations. And that's what he's talking about. But Adam and Eve coming together, that was the first marriage. God solved Adam's loneliness problem first by creating a wife. It's not the only way he solved it, because once they started uh, being fruitful and multiplying, you know, having lots and lots and lots of children, I don't have any idea how many children Adam and Eve had. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. But uh, they had lots, many, many, many. And uh, by then, you know, Eve was not God's only provision for Adam's loneliness, but he was, uh, she was his first provision. From that foundational relationship came all other relationships, all other relationships. The unity of marriage then is deep, profound. It's physical and spiritual. God has, in a mysterious way, joined two people together. Joined two people together. Matthew 19, 6, it says, so they are no longer two, but one. Isn't that a marvelous thing to think about? No longer two, but one. In what sense are they one? Well, uh, they're, they're one in a similar sense to the way that the Trinity is one. That's, that's what we would say. Not, it's not a perfect analogy, but there is a, a beautiful kind of unity there uh, between the husband and the wife. The marital union then is a remarkable and mysterious picture of the union between Christ and his church. It says in Ephesians 5.32, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So two persons relating to each other is, I think, a reflection of the Trinity. We are relational beings. We really are. I mean, don't you want to share things when you discover something and you want to say, hey, look at that, you know? I mean, it's just, it's just enhanced by being able to share it with another person. To me, that's so much of, of worship, isn't it? Come magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Heaven would be greatly diminished if it were just you and God, okay? And it isn't going to be anyway. I'm going to be there at least. And so are a lot of other people here in the room. So I'm planning on being there and whatever. So it's going to be a big, incredible place and frankly, a multitude greater than anyone could number, it says, from every tribe and language and people and nation. Lots and lots of people. And that's not going to be a problem because our sin nature will be gone and our fellowship will be rich and wonderful. God knows best. And, and so uh, it's just greatly enhanced by having all of these saved people around. It's going to be wonderful and marvelous, uh, an incredible thing. So at any rate, two per- persons relating together is a reflection of the Trinity. We've already talked about this, the plurality of persons uh, prefigured in u- unusual grammar, where it says in Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness. And then Genesis 11.7 about the Tower of Babel. Come down, let us go, come, let us go down and confuse their language so they'll not understand each other. So that's that plurality of language. Others have interpreted it a different way. You know, that's fine. Uh, just the majestic plural, you know, like kings say, you know, we are not a muse, that kind of thing. Um, but uh, no, I think, I think that's intertrinitarian uh, hint at that point. Uh, communication. That's one of my absolute favorite things to think about in eternity past, the fellowship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the beautiful and perfect fellowship. You know why it's good for you to think about that? Because that's where you're heading in your relationship with one another. I mean, someday you're going to be as one with me as the Father and the Son are one, and not just me, but with every Christian all over the world. We're all going to be perfectly united together. Isn't that marvelous? That they may be one as we are one, I and them and they and me, May they be brought together in perfect unity. That's the, the beautiful picture there. Uh, so it's seen most dramatically, the two-person relationship in the perfect relationship between the Father and the Son. 
as it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning. And John 17, 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. All right, so there's that two-person relationship. And therefore, what I'm arguing is that any two persons relating, especially two Christians relating, it's a picture of the intertrinitarian relationship. That's what it means, I think, that we're created in the image of God. But God did something special. In Genesis 1.26, he went beyond that. Male and female, he created them. And then he invented this thing called marriage because that was going to be relating at an even higher level. It was going to be relating at the highest level two people can relate in this world, in this present situation. He created uh, this idea of marital union. Now, there's other relationships, parent-child, sibling-sibling, church unity. As I mentioned there, 1 Corinthians 1.10, that may be perfectly united in mind and thought. There's friendship, uh, as these verses indicate, about two persons. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. And this is one of those great marriage things that doesn't mention marriage, but that's fine. Uh, two are better than one because they have good return for their work. If one falls down, a friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Uh, though one may be uh, overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. This is just talking about the beauty and the joy of human fellowship. But in the, in the marvelous way that God ordained, all of that, all of it flows through husband-wife relationship. That's the way that God ordained to fill the world with people. That's where the people come from. That's where the friends that, that are born for adversity for each other come from. They come as a result of marriage. They come as a result of, of a man and a woman coming together. Of all of these relationships, it's one man, one woman, covenant relationship of marriage that best pictures Christ's relationship to the church. And gender is essential to that. Okay, so the first level that male and female shows the image of God is that it's intrinsic to the plan of God to fill the earth with human beings. What, a, what an amazing thing. You know, I think about our fifth child that's uh, being knit together right now and, and that God is creating an eternal being there. Isn't that a marvelous thought? What an incredible thing that is. Heaven or hell. You know, we pray that that, that child would believe in Christ and trust in the Lord. No guarantee there, but we desire it with all our hearts and we're praying for it but uh, god is making people this way through marriage it's a marvelous thing and so at any rate just to sum up the whole big first point of the three male female demonstrates the glory and the image of god by relationship the highest of which is the husband wife relationship okay now the second point that grudem makes uh, in his chapter is uh, the issue of equality and personhood and importance this is so important for us to get across, so important for us to emphasize. Members of the Trinity are equal in importance and in deity. Okay? Uh, there's no, no question about that. So also male and female are equally created in God's image and each reflect God's character in their lives. Therefore, men and women, boys and girls, are equally important to God and equally valuable to Him. That is a very important Christian teaching. It is not held all around the world. The, the role of women in non-Christian societies is deplorable for the most part. It's terrible. But in Christian societies, much higher. It's ironic that a society 
that gives birth to aggressive feminism that denies gender significance and all that could only have come in a Judeo-Christian context because all the other cultures were totally denigrating women's roles, totally denigrating women as even human beings. It's really quite tragic if you you, you stop and think about it. Uh, Because male and female are created in the image of God, like it says, they're equally valuable, vital, important to him. So this should exclude uh, all feelings of favoritism or pride. No gender is better or worse than the other. Now I know it's VBS and they're having a boys versus girls competition on the pennies thing. And so uh, my girls came to me and asked me for pennies and I was a little conflicted because I had to go either with my family or my gender. I didn't know which to do at that point because uh, my, my son, my sons are out of it. Although Calvin's in it, I guess I could give him a bunch of pennies. But the girls were begging all the more and Calvin doesn't even know what's going on. So it's definitely the girls here wanting lots and lots of pennies from dad. And I'm going family on this one, not gender. Okay, definitely. I want the girls to win. So we're going to give the girls lots of pennies. Don't tell Nathaniel I said that. He'll be frustrated with me, all right? That he's going to go gender all the way. Um, but the point is, you know, there's all these boy-girl competitions and all that. The fact of the matter is both boys and girls are equally valuable to God. And I can tell you this as a father. I really don't care what we have as a child. I really don't. I'd be excited either way. Uh, it's just an incredible blessing. I know uh, Carolyn wants a girl. Are you saying that right now? You want a sister? All right. Well, they already have picked out the gender, but they don't get to make that decision. It's already been made by God. But uh, boys and girls, men and women, equally, equally valuable. Now, this should exclude also any feelings of inferiority. The Bible has a high view of the value of a woman as uh, well, uh, value of a man as well as a a woman. Now, on page five, you know, one of the tragic things is in a non-Christian country like China, uh, they have obviously extreme population problems. And so the Chinese... Communist Party trying to do social engineering mandated that, you know, basically one couple, one child. You probably know about that. But also just in their heritage and their culture, I don't know if it's Confucianism or what it is, they just value sons much more highly than daughters. Much more highly than daughters to the point where they will uh, actually commit infanticide. They'll just let girl babies just die through neglect. And then they'll try again and try to have a son. Isn't that incredible? Tragic. And to us... As Christians, we do recoil in horror from that. And why? Because of the value of that little girl. She's valuable. She's precious. That's a Christian way of thinking. You see that? It comes from Genesis 126 and all the other Bible teaching on the value of a, of a, a female. But, you know, in, in a non-Christian country like that, you know, they're actually having to make laws. You know, the Chinese uh, Communist Party is making laws against um, sex-selected abortions. They, they are. And, and this is really an ironic thing for the American feminist movement because they're advocating a woman's right to choose. But over in a country like that, they are choosing to abort females because they're females. And they're like, well, it's not what we meant. Um, and my feeling is, well, listen, you know, that's to me, the whole thing comes from the Judeo-Christian value that we place on women. But over there, they don't have that same thing. Well, then why is the Communist Party making laws against it? Well, there's a basic problem. Can you see what the basic problem is? There's an awful lot more boys than there are girls to the tune of a gap of about 50 million. Think about that, 50 million. Now, it's remarkable how 50-50 the thing is. It's actually, I've heard a little more like 50.5 to 49.5, more, a few more females than males. I don't know why God's chosen to do that. But in that place, it's 
greatly skewed the other way. And the reason is culture. It's, it's the value they place on a male or a boy over the girl. And the, the Communist Party is trying to find legislation to overturn that. Are they going to be able to change that culture in their heart? Are they going to have a hard time? Have a really hard time, but they'll do what they can. You know, isn't it amazing how God's ways are best? Aren't they just best? They are the ones that said one, one family, one couple, one child, right? They're the ones that made that law. That's unnatural. That's not God's way. He said, be fruitful and multiply. So it's an interesting thing, the problem they're going to have. Is that going to be a problem down the road, a 50 million gap between boys and girls? I don't have any idea what that's going to do to their society, but it isn't going to be good. It's going to be very, very difficult. At any rate, the basic point is, is this, and that is uh, that Christian faith supports absolutely the value, the equal worth in God's sight um, between uh, boys and girls, males and females. Um, I found this little article here on this, and, and I, I clip quoted it here on page five. It says, for two decades, the Chinese government has limited rural couples to one child per family, two if the first is a female. A recent Time Magazine article on uh, July in, uh, 2002 reported that <clears throat> due to gender-based abortions and other practices, China is currently facing a shortage of 50 million women. The situation in China shows us another area where we are called to defend the value of life. The underlying message of China's female infanticide is that female offspring are less valuable than males. This message is just as insidious as the assertion that the unborn, elderly, or infirm are less valuable than a person who is healthy and contributing to society. Watch it, folks, because that's the message that's going across these days with euthanasia and other things. And you know what it is? And and you've got to be so careful because it relates to this topic generally tonight. The issue of gender, like in the church or whatever, is sensitive and touchy because we Americans tend to equate importance with what you can achieve and do in this world. Do you know what I'm saying? We are valuable because of what we can accomplish, the kind of stuff you can put on a resume. We are less valuable if you can't put as much stuff on a resume. You're not really valuable at all if you can't contribute anything to society. That utilitarian ethic is anti-Christian. Where do we get our value? Where does our value as persons come from? I, I think it comes from two places. Where, where does it come from? Where does our value as human beings come from? We're created in the image of God first. And secondly, we're redeemed by the blood of Christ and we're being conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's where you get your worth and value. So if you get in a car accident tomorrow and become a quadriplegic and can uh, uh, contribute nothing more to society, you will still be equally valuable to God as you were before the accident. Do you understand that? We are so works-based all the time. We're always thinking about what we can achieve and accomplish. It's really very insidious. It's not just the issue of of gender and and all that. It's even the issue of how you feel about yourself before God and what you're achieving and doing and all that. It's so tough. It's tough if you're facing unemployment as a as a man or if you're if you're you know there's other issues and you take on yourself and you feel worthless because of what you are or not achieving. You got to fight it. Our value comes from the fact that we're created in the image of God and we're redeemed by the blood of Christ. That's where it comes from and not from what we can achieve or do. Feminism makes a mistake in basically telling a, a woman that her value will be enhanced if she gets outside and works and if she achieves a bunch of things and does all these things. That, there's another issue there and that's where she, the, the woman who raises her children and trains them and brings them up, uh, that's no value at all. I can't believe that. That's incredible to me. I can't think of anything more complex than raising a child. Right? <laughs> I mean, it is challenging. I mean, it's so much easier. 
I used to sometimes feel guilty going to work because it's so simple there, you know, and it's so complex in with the children. You know, I just think sometimes one of the most complicated things is to shape and train a child, not just for life, but really for eternity, be evangelizing and discipling them, getting them ready. But the society is telling us that's not worth much. Do something with your life. That's terrible. That's terrible. So just bottom line, even if you don't evangelize and disciple anybody, you're still valuable in God's sight because you're created in the image of God and redeemed through the blood of Christ. So let's not get even then into the works thing. But I'm saying even if we're assessing the value of works, what, what the world esteems as highly valuable, God thinks of as nothing. And what the world denigrates as of little value, God esteems highly. So let's be careful about that. So beware. Our society is kind of a meritocracy which places supreme importance on roles and achievements. This is the root of much of the bitterness over gender-based role distinctions. Some of you have come into the church since we struggled on the issue of gender and, and authority in our church. So you don't know much about that story. Others of you were here while it was going on. But I think the rancorous and bitter nature stems from this right here. I really believe it. People think we're saying to others, you're not valuable, you're not important, or I'm more valuable and more important than you. That's, we've never said that. That's, and to say that is wrong. It's not true that a pastor is more valuable than somebody who's not a pastor. It's not true that somebody who teaches is more valuable than somebody who helps or prays. That just is simply not true. But we get, in, get into this mentality in thinking that. And so there's a hierarchy of value and importance. And thus there's that bitterness there. I think there's also a kind of a free will aspect where I can do whatever I want. I can do what I choose with my life. Well, no, you can't. And we, we take the roles that we're gifted and equipped to do by God, right? And that's what a servant does. A servant doesn't say, this is what I'd like to do for you today, master. No, a servant says, what would you like me to do? Paul, a bond servant of Christ Jesus. What is my calling in life? That kind of thing. So at any rate, um, let's be careful. We were created in his image and redeemed. That's where we get our value. Now, Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 11:7 7 does not change this at all, but it's worth bringing it up at this point. Okay, there Paul says, a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Have you read this before? And you say, well, what does that mean? Is Paul there denying that women are created in the image of God? Well, what do you think? Let me ask you a question. Who do you think knows the Old Testament better, you or Paul? Okay, do you think Paul is not aware of that male and female are created in the image of God? Of course, he's aware of what's written there, but he's making another statement. That's all. He is not saying woman is the glory of man and not created in the image of God. He didn't say that. He's actually putting another level of glory onto the woman. And in effect, what what he's saying is, in the same way that we display the glory of God, a woman is displaying the glory of of the man, this woman in particular, because she was taken out of of, uh, Adam in an amazing and unique way. Grudem's explanation on this is Paul is not denying that that woman was created in the image of God. He is simply saying that there are abiding differences between men and women that should be reflected in the way they dress and act in the assembled congregation. One of those differences is that, that man in relationship to woman has a particular role of representing God or showing what he is like. And woman in that relationship shows the excellence of the man from whom she was created. Yet in both cases, Paul goes on to emphasize their interdependence in verse 11 and 12. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as women, a woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Isn't that marvelous how God did that? 
how the first woman came out of man in a way that really is, is against nature, against what happened after that. But from then on, every other man gets his body, his life out of a, his mother. It's just an amazing thing that God's done. And so there's a beautiful interdependence there in the Lord, as Paul uh, puts it. So I'm not getting into the whole head covering thing tonight. I'm just talking about that phrase about the woman being the glory of, of the man. Okay. Now, there are many, many verses uh, honoring the worth of women. They abound in the Bible. Uh, a wife of noble character, Proverbs 31, 10 and 28 30, uh, through 30. A wife of noble character who can find she is worth far more than rubies. Her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. I, I believe she is to be eternally praised, just like a faithful servant of the Lord will be praised. Well done, good and faithful servant. You know, It says in another place, at that time, each will receive his praise from God. I think a faithful, godly woman is going to be praised by God on Judgment Day. Isn't that a beautiful thought? To me, that is the treasure you're storing up in heaven. Praise from God, that God would say, well done, well done, well done, well done. What you did pleased me. It honored me. Well done. I'm saying, let's have lots and lots of those, right? And so a woman who fears the Lord is greatly to be praised. So I, I don't know how you could not find value in that. Also, it says in 1 Peter 3, 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. You know, women read that and some might get offended by the phrase weaker vessel. But look at the first phrase. And there it says showing honor uh, as the weaker vessel. And then it says, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered co-heirs, heirs together with you of the gracious gift of life, as Paul puts it. And then, of course, there's a case of Mary. And it says, in the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. I tell you what, I would take an angel's praise, wouldn't you? Wouldn't that be great, have an angel come down and say, heaven thinks highly of you, you know, just like uh, the angel had said to Daniel earlier. You are highly esteemed. That's a marvelous thing. So these are two human beings about which a heavenly messenger came down and said you are highly esteemed, Daniel and Mary. That's a marvelous thing, isn't it? All right, also we see equality in the equal outpouring of the Spirit. Acts 2, 17 and 18. This is Peter quoting Joel 2 uh, in his Pentecost sermon. He said, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, uh, both men and women, it says, I'll pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Well, I'd like to take that quote and just, you know, uh, expand it to talk about the issue of spiritual gifts. Women are equal heirs with men of the gifts of the spirit. So the Holy Spirit comes and enables women to serve in the body indispensably. See what I'm saying? Uh, just like the men serve indispensably. Frankly, every single member is indispensable. The hand can't say to the foot, I don't need you. We need each other, don't we? We are mutually dependent. Uh, you know, imagine a fellowship that's only men, all right? It, it lacks something. I'm not saying we shouldn't have men's breakfast and all that, but there's just something missing. And I would dare to say that only women, there's something missing, all right? Have those times, that's fine. But the general life of the church, men and women are both needed, in order to accomplish the mission of the church. Absolutely essential. And I don't just mean biologically. I'm not just talking about procreation. 
I'm talking about spiritual gifts. I'm talking about the way that God has lavished his Holy Spirit on both men and women. So I'm just taking that idea of prophesying and saying there's other gifts besides. And all of those gifts, the gifts of, 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 of giving and prayer and teaching and encouragement, exhortation, all of the gifts that there are, those things are lavished out, male and female. Uh, and I, th- I think we just take as our jumping off point here, Acts 2, the promise of the pouring out of the Spirit. And there's also equality in, uh, really ultimately, in standing before God on the basis of redemption in Christ. That's what I take this to mean in Galatians 3. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, I'll tell you what, that is an amazing verse. And anytime you get into the whole issue of gender and authority, this one comes up. Unless the people are so biblically illiterate, they don't know that this is their best verse for uh, you know a feminist viewpoint from the Bible. So sometimes you'll have to tell them, this is your best verse. Let me tell you why it doesn't mean what you might think it means. Okay, um, But this verse does not talk in any way about roles. Do you see that? It's not talking here about roles, not talking about mothers and fathers and all that, that, that any man can be a mother if he wants to. Is that what it says? Well, where do we get these weird ideas? It just says we're all one in Christ. We're all one in Christ. It doesn't say we all have the exact same function in the body. That's not what it says. Uh, frankly, even, even Paul's language when he says there is neither Jew nor Greek. Paul says in another place in Romans, I am a Jew. Think about that. Is he contradicting himself? Now, wait a minute, Paul. How can you say I am a Jew? You just said there is no Jew or, or Greek. Paul's saying, no, understand what I mean when I say there's no Jew or Greek. What it means is there's no advantage spiritually to being a Jew over being a Greek in Christ. You see what I'm saying? There's no advantage. You're not any better off if you're a Jewish Christian than if you're not. The thing is, if you're a Christian or not, that's what matters. It's in Christ we're all one. So you're not at any disadvantage to be a Gentile believer. Amen? I all say that. Amen. Because we're all Gentile believers. All right. But, but what I'm saying, we're not in any, we're not at any disadvantage. No, we're not second class citizens as Gentiles. Do you believe that? I know you do. Well, the same extends also to slave or, or free. I mean, you know, either way, you're not at any disadvantage given your societal role. If you're the master, if you're the slave, you're not in any better or worse situation spiritually before God. That's what he's saying. And that's what he's saying on gender too. Do you see it? He's just saying there's no advantage to being a man spiritually. And there's no disadvantage to being a woman and vice versa. Okay? Why do people take this beyond what it says? Why do they say, well, see, there's no male or female? Well, I mean, if you take that to its logical conclusion, then you're going to have gay marriage. You're going to have all kinds of stuff because if gender literally means nothing, then how could you legislate against you know, as a Christian against it, you have to say, well, there really is neither male or female. So I guess marriage as we've known it is obsolete or changed forever. No, it isn't. God does uphold. He knows whether you're a man or a woman. And he knows you should marry the opposite. It's just the way it is. And so this verse should not be taken out of context. That's all I'm saying. But isn't it beautiful, the equality that this verse does teach? Let's take that and see it, that we are all equally redeemed in Christ if we have faith in Christ. That's all it's saying, okay? But there are differences in roles. That's the third thing. There are differences in roles and in authority. Now, there is a relationship between the Trinity and male headship in marriage. The doctrine of the Trinity teaches 
total equality of the three persons in their deity. That is is true. Uh, We don't believe that the Father is more God than the Son. We don't. I mean, that would be a heresy. Those things were all dealt with during the whole Christological controversies that they worked through in the early stages of the church. God the Father is not more God than God the Son is. Uh, Neither is he more God than God the Holy Spirit. However, there has always been understood to be a difference of roles in the Trinity. We should not imagine that God the Father became at some point God the Father, you know, or that God the Son became at some point God the Son. Those roles are eternal. We really believe they're eternal. So the Father has always acted the Father toward the Son, and the Son has always acted the Son toward the Father. Those roles mean something. Now, they mean something in that we have learned through biological procreation by observing how fathers and sons interact with each other. And then we take that dim, simple, earthly knowledge and relate it up to the Trinity in a very simplistic way. Do you understand what I mean when I say the father-son analogy is not perfect, but it's what, what God has given us to try to understand the relationship between God the Father and God the Son? So he uses physical creation to teach us about himself. Revelation, uh, sorry, Romans 1 says that there's a revelation of God's intrinsic nature in creation and what he's made. So we look at the relationship between a father and son and say, oh, okay, the relationship between then the first member of the Trinity and the second is similar to that of, the fa- of a father and a son. Is that a new thing? No, it's eternal. It's the way it's always been, forever. So then, uh, though each member of the Trinity has equal power and attributes, yet the Father has the greater authority. In creation, the Father speaks and initiates, but the Son carries out the work of creation and the Spirit sustains it by His continual presence, by His work. So also in redemption, the Father sends the Son into the world. The Son comes and obeys His Father's authority. He dies for our sins in obedience to the Father's will. Remember what it says in John 10. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life for the sheep. This command I received from the Father. He said, I have authority to lay it down. He's talking about his life. And I have authority to take it up again. John 10, 17. This command I received from my Father. What is Jesus saying there? I die at God's word. I die at his command. When he tells me, I will lay down my life. And when he tells me, I'll take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Do you see the beautiful submission of the Son to the Father? It's a beautiful thing. He says, I don't do anything apart from the will of the Father. I always do what pleases Him. That's what the Son said to the Father. That's a beautiful thing. And what a pattern that should be for us in our Christian lives, right? I only want to please my Heavenly Father. Well, I don't think that that was just a role that Jesus took on in His earthly days. I don't believe that. I think that it has always been that way, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, each member of the Trinity has a different role to play, different functions to perform. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians 11.3 there on the middle of page 7. It says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband. This is the ESV translation. And the head of Christ is God. Wow. Head of Christ is God. Um, now, some people say that kephale, their head, means source or origination, but I think that it just falls apart. I think it really means authority, one in authority over. So there's a sense of authority even while there's equality there. Also, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 28, very, very deep verses, very deep verses. There it says, Then the end will come when he, Christ, hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. He's going to hand the kingdom over to his Father. Isn't that an incredible thought? 
For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to, to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now, when he says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. What is Paul saying there? So I want you to understand when I use this word, this word everything, God the Father is not under Jesus' feet. Oh, no. But actually, quite the contrary, when he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Now, that is deep. Made subject to him eternally? Yeah. But that's, that's, there's nothing dishonoring about that. It's the order of the Trinity. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. I just think we're just corrupt when it comes to the issue of authority and submission and, and obedience and all that. We just recoil against it, don't we? There's something inside us that says that's got to be evil. How can the Son forever be in subjection to the Father? As 1 Corinthians 15 says that He will be. Well, to the, to the Son, that's no burden. He's delighted to be in subjection to His Father. He's pleased to do it. And frankly, He's redeeming you to be pleased to do it too. Isn't that beautiful? He's redeeming you to be pleased to be in subjection to God the Father. Glad to do it. That's what I think the kingdom is. Now, uh, there were distinction of roles, in my opinion, before the fall. Some people will teach that the uh, distinction of roles is post-fall. And why is that important? Why would it be true that there would only, if there's only distinction of roles after sin, why would that be significant for the church? Well, because, you know, like uh, the Christmas carol that Wesley wrote, we talk about far as the curse is found, you know, joy to the world. Far as the curse is found, actually Isaac Watts, I think. Basically, is Christ redeeming us from gender-based roles so we go back to that pristine era before the fall so that there are no gender-based roles? Well, if we can prove that there were gender-based roles before the fall, then all we're going to do is clean up the sin that's come to corrupt those roles. You see what I'm saying? Rather than say that the roles themselves are evil. So if we can find actually prior to the fall some gender-based roles, then we'll know that that was the way God intended it. And I think we do. First of all, Adam was created first. Is that important? Well, it sure was important to Paul in 1 Timothy 2 when he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. Why? Well, for Adam was created first, then Eve. And I, I had a, an interesting discussion once with a, with a woman who was very intelligent, Gordon Conwell Seminary, uh, much more intelligent than I was, and a very good debater. And we were talking, just the two of us, in an empty room. I remember that. So we're having a debate, just the two of us. Give us her arguments so we can use them. <laughs> Tell us all of Her arguments? Why do you want her arguments? Um, well, what I will say is um, she was uh, talking about this, and, and uh, it says Adam was formed first, then Eve, and uh, Adam was not deceived, um, uh, but the woman was. And she's saying, well, look at that right there. Who would you rather have? Somebody who just didn't know what they were doing or somebody who willfully was deceived? Well, the whole argument was a little bit sassy, quite frankly, because to Paul, it was important that Adam was created first. Therefore, it should be important to her and to me as a Christian. That's all. And even if you don't see it, even if you don't get it, if you clearly see that it was important to Paul, then as a Christian, you just have to say, it needs to be important to me too. I don't understand it. I don't, I don't see why it's important that they were created first. Frankly, if you look at the order of creation, everything's building up to man, right? Man was created last. I mean, you get man after creepy crawly things, right? You get creepy crawly things first, winged insects, right? So are, are we like lower than them? Clearly not. 
But you say, well, then I would think that the woman would be the pinnacle of creation, right? She is the absolute last thing. She's like the, she, everything else is like dry run, dress rehearsal. And then you get, you get woman, right? The pinnacle. And actually my systematic theology teacher taught that, said that she's just the absolute pinnacle of creation. And in many ways she really is in a beautiful, beautiful way. Uh, you know, let's just take the barb out of it and say absolutely beautiful. But for authority, for some reason, God chose that there be a time that Adam was alone totally alone and there was no one else just adam he did that for a reason i think he did that to create order in society not just in husband wife relationship not just in the family but just in society in general we are going to submit to created beings aren't we you're going to submit to the police officer you're going to submit to the teacher you're going to submit to your boss you're going to submit to lots of created beings and god set that pattern by having adam first and then his wife all right so i think that's what what happened eve was created to be a helper for adam not the other way around and Paul makes this very clear that, that the uh, woman was created for man and not man for the woman. The and not is very offensive to the modern egalitarian view. But it shouldn't be offensive to Christians. There is a way in which a woman is a helper to a man that a man is not a helper to the woman. Paul clearly thought that. To us, we embrace that. And we say, well, what's wrong with being a helper? Jesus is our helper. You know the Ebenezer stone? God is my helper. That's what it is. God helps us. And so it's a beautiful thing to help. And that's what a wife does for her husband. Isn't that wonderful? I actually called my wife today and and encouraged her because I said, I'm going to get up and teach this. I just want her to know I'm grateful for the help. I'm not always grateful for it. Sometimes I'm not too grateful for the help she gives. have to confess it's true that my pride actually says, I know that. You know, I can do it. But I can't. You know, I, I actually have some blind spots and that God has brought her into my life to help me. And I'm a fool if I don't accept that help gladly. Right, wives? Say, yes, husbands, yes, we're here to help you. Just listen. We know better about many things. Just trust us. Uh, We'll tell you uh, what they are. So anyway, um, so Adam named Eve. That was after the fall. But he named her. She would be the mother of all living. He gave her a name. That's significant. God named the human race man, not woman, as we talked about last time two weeks ago. Uh, The serpent came to Eve first. Why is that significant? Well, he's trying to suborn the order that God created. He's trying to backdoor the thing. He's trying to overturn what God has done. He's always working contrary to what God wants. Uh, God spoke to Adam first after the fall. Uh, and so what is God doing? Reestablishing the order. You know, uh, Adam, not Eve, represented the human race. That's Romans 5. Original sin. We didn't sin in Eve. She ate the fruit first. Uh, but we didn't sin in her. We sinned in Adam. Uh, he's, he's the federal head of the human race. He's our father and we sinned in him. All right, and the curse brought a distortion of previous roles, not the introduction of new roles. That is pretty clear, and I think we're going to see it. You know, your your job, Adam, was to work through the world. Okay, your work's going to get tough now, okay? Your job, Eve, was to bring forth life, to, to be a mother to all living. Now it's going to get really tough and painful. But you don't see whole new roles or a whole reversal or change. You just see a curse on the jobs that were given. And then redemption in Christ reaffirms the creation order. All right, these are varieties of reasons why we see that gender-based role distinctions were before the fall. They were created good. And you know what that means? It means they're good things. One of the most incredible things that happened to me on the woman's issue, uh, and it's like, I got, I got to the point where I was like, God, why? Because I did this up in, up in New England at New Meadows Baptist, and then I come down here and here it is again. It's like, Lord, is this just my thing in life? I'm going to be doing the woman's issue? And, and I, I was like getting a little resentful. But then something happened. I really think it was a conversation I had with Barbara Carell. I'll never forget it. And she, it just changed my view. But she came and just from her heart thanked me for the teaching that she was getting. She said, it's just freed me up to embrace my God-given roles. 
And I, it occurred to me I was looking at it wrong. I, the pastor, I was looking at it wrong. I was shying away from or embarrassed of a truth from God. How could we ever do that? Instead, what we need to do is say, God, show us the truth and we'll embrace it and things will go well for us. Our families will be in good order. Our churches will be healthy. Our children will be, will be raised right. I mean, good things happen when you embrace God's good word. And so I stopped being embarrassed about it. Haven't been ever since. And I know it's going to get me in trouble from time to time, but that's really their problem and not mine. And I really just feel sorry for them. At some point, I think I hope that they're going to see that God's ways are better. God's ways are good. What a mess there is out in the world, the confused world. Do you see how messy it is? We don't need to have that mess. Praise God that we're freed from it. All right, now on the question of mutual submission, some have talked about this. Doesn't it say that we're supposed to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ? Have you ever heard this before? Mutual submission. I heard, well, go to Gordon Conwell, you'll hear it. That's where, I mean, that's, this is a key verse for egalitarianism. It's a good seminary. They teach a lot of great things, but on this issue, they are wrong. I'll go on tape and say it. Mutual submission is not taught in the way they imagine in Ephesians 5.21, all right? First of all, you have to understand what the Greek word hupotasso means. It means in every case, submission to uh, authority, God-ordained authority. It, it really does. It's used in a lot of ways. For example, Jesus was submissive to his parents and his mother treasured up these things in her heart. By the way, that's a good proof that, that person A submitting to person B does not thereby prove that person A is of lower value than person B. Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, perfect Son of God, submitted to his sinful parents because it was God ordained one of the Ten Commandments to do so. God did not look at Mary and Joseph as better or higher than Jesus thereby. Do you see that? So we should embrace submission and not look at it on it as a bad thing. Uh, it says the demons submit to us in your name. Now, what, what they do with this idea of mutual submission is that the word submission means to something like to be thoughtful and considerate and to act in love toward one another. That's what it means. So that in a way, a husband submits to his wife when he's rubbing her feet or, or getting her a drink or something like that. No, he's not. He's acting in love, but he's not submitting to her. He's loving her as Christ loved the church, but he's not submitting to her. Let's not mess with the words. So therefore, submit to one another. What I really think it means is submit to one another one category of Christians to another category of Christians in the way I'm about to describe. Wives to their husbands, children to their parents, slaves to their masters. And by the way, I have some important things to say to those who are receiving the submission the ones in authority. Husbands, treat your wives a certain way. Parents, treat your children in a certain way. And masters, treat your slaves in a certain way. Do you see how he does it? I think that's how he, he teaches the whole thing. And so therefore, mutual submission does not mean everybody is submitting to everybody else. So it's just kind of an e, a totally egalitarian situation all the way across. Is that okay? Any, I mean, I'm running out of time, so I'd like to press on a few comments about marriage. If you have any questions about mutual submission, come and ask me. I want to say one last thing about an application of marriage and we'll be done. There are two categories of errors that Wayne Grudem uh, discerns, and I think that they're, they're both there. Errors of aggressiveness in marriage and errors of passiveness, passivity. Errors of aggressiveness in marriage would be, for example, a husband to be dominatingly uh, tyrannical toward his wife, dominating her, perhaps abusing her physically, emotionally, mentally, verbally, just a dominant person, all right? That is aggressive, it's sin, it's wrong. It, it is sin. 
Uh, conversely, the female can be aggressive toward her role by not submitting to her husband, by trying to be domineering herself, by seizing control of situations, that kind of thing. That is sin as well. For her to be resentful or to un- not submissive to her husband is sin. Those are one category, areas of aggressiveness. But then there's areas of passivity. Here you get what's known as the passive male syndrome, PMS. I've heard this before. Passive male syndrome. Um, it's, I believe, in my opinion, I talked to John Piper about this, and we had a conversation. Both of us agreed that the first sin in history, human sin, was a sin of omission, not commission. It wasn't when Adam ate the fruit. It was Adam when Adam didn't do anything to prevent his wife from eating the fruit. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he also ate. What's he doing? What's up? And both John Piper and I, is like we both think it was an error of omission that did it first. Isn't that amazing? It's remarkable. He's just standing there. Don't you have anything to say? Nothing at all? He was told to guard the, the garden and protect it. He didn't do it. He disobeyed God's command. He was told to protect it. Genesis 2. He didn't. He didn't. So you get the wimp, the girly man, whatever. The guy who just will not lead. He's not going to lead. He's not. And, and it just takes immense energy. You know, I say sometimes in a, in a way, you know, just basically all roads lead to me and our family. I mean, they're just, you know, questions, issues, leadership, whatever. And it can be exhausting. And that's where a, a good marriage, the, the wife is helping her husband to do that lead, to take that burden and lead well in the family. Because it is, it's a, it's a, it's a calling that God's given us, all right? Uh, correspondingly, a wife can be totally passive, the doormat, contributing nothing to her husband's decision-making process, not giving him the benefit of her wisdom and unique perspective. That's a passive error on the wife's part because now she's not a helper to her husband. She's not giving him wisdom. She's not giving him the advice and counsel that he uh, needs. Okay, Grudem finishes with this. Husbands, therefore, should aim for loving, considerate, thoughtful leadership in their families. Wives should aim for active, intelligent, joyful submission to their husband's authority. In avoiding both kinds of mistakes and following a biblical pattern, husbands and wives will discover true biblical manhood and womanhood in all of their noble dignity and joyful complementarity as God created them to be and will thus reflect more fully the image of God in their lives. Let's, uh, let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, thank you for the time we've had tonight. <clears throat> really, I hope to celebrate what you've done in creating us male and female. I pray that we would never be embarrassed, not just about our own gender, but embarrassed about the topic of gender and about what God means by male and female, what roles he has for us to play that are unique and special, that we would not be embarrassed or resentful or um, arrogant about these roles, but that we would take them and to your glory live under them for as long as we walk on this earth. Lord, we know that things will change when we have resurrection bodies and we're neither married nor given in marriage. We don't know exactly how it will change in this matter of gender, but we do know, Lord, that it's here in this world that we are called on to carry out these roles. Help us to do it, Lord, to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.